Well, many of you will know that uh, we're now partway into a series of five sermons which focus upon some practices of fruitful congregations. Last week, we reminded ourselves that Christian congregations that are fruitful, and by that we mean Christ-like and healthy and productive, engage in risk-taking mission and service. And today, we note that fruitful congregations are also characterized by extravagant generosity. I think what the writer of the book that we're using these uh, images from wanted to get across to us is that if you stopped the person in the street and said, what are that people of God like? These are the kind of things that people would say of the church. And to help us look at this theme this morning, extravagant generosity, we're turning to Paul, to the second letter of the Corinthians that uh, was read for us by Mark a short time ago, remembering that Paul is writing to the Corinthians who are a group of Christian disciples in a complicated world of change, just as we are. The first thing that Paul reminds them and reminds us today as people who live uh, as disciples today is pretty straightforward and logical, so much so that we use it as a saying. You reap what you sow. He uses the example of a farmer sowing seeds and simply says, if a farmer sows sparingly with very little seed, the harvest is necessarily sparse. But if the farmer sows generously, then there's a much greater chance that the harvest is plentiful. You reap what you sow. And so in terms of our resources, our money certainly, but also our time and our talents, how do we sow? And if someone were observing our life as individuals in a church, would they say as they look on that we sow sparsely or generously? That we sow richly or reluctantly? Remember that devastating parable told by Jesus in Luke chapter 12 about the man who built bigger barns and when one barn was full, he knocked it down, built a bigger one and moved all his stuff in. And he says to himself, soul, he speaks to himself, soul, relax, eat, drink, be merry. And in that parable, God says to the man, you're a fool. This day your life is ended, could end, it means in the Greek. And all the things that you've stored away and kept and hoarded, where are they now? So alongside the question of how do we sow, sparsely or generously, is the question of what are we sowing into? What kind of field, to extend the metaphor? What ministry? Is our sowing about ourselves or is our sowing about the ministries of God? To the man who built bigger and bigger barns, God says, judgment comes to all those, this is from Luke, judgment comes to all those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich towards God. 
It's quite possible, you see, to sow generously in fields that all benefit you. It's often noted of people down the ages, and our generation is no different, that the last thing to be converted is purses and wallets. Michael Green, uh, the Anglican uh, famous writer, tells a story of soldiers fighting in the Crusades in the Middle Ages, seeking to be baptized as they went into battle at a time when they wouldn't have been baptized as infants, and then insisting that as they went under the waters of baptism, they kept A, their armor on, and secondly, kept their sword hand out of the water. Now, I can imagine some reasonable reasons for that. Perhaps they didn't want to get rusty. But the metaphor is you can have all this in the waters of baptism, but I'm keeping hold of this. Lots of us undergo baptism into Christ. We claim to be converted. We seek to be disciples, holding, if you like, in this image, the wallets and purses and bank accounts out of the water. Oh, Lord, everything, but not this as well. 150 years ago, our Methodist grandparents in faith largely tithed. It was almost a given. In my previous role, I spent lots and lots of time trying to convince lots of Methodists that closing 1,000 Methodist chapels every decade was largely good news because some of them need to close. But one of the things I often said to them was, the only reason you find it a problem that we've got so many chapels now we don't know what to do with is because your great-grandfathers in faith were so generous and faithful about the needs and the purposes of the gospel. If they didn't give sacrificially in every little town and village and hamlet in the north and east and south and west of Britain, you wouldn't have to now worry what to do with 4,000 redundant buildings. Why do we find it more difficult today? Writers tell us that the wealthier we are and the more that we have that we regard as normative, the harder we find it is, not easier, the harder we find it is to be extravagantly generous with what we got. So, says Jesus, build up treasure in heaven. It's as if we've got, as disciples, two accounts closely connected, our earthly account and our heavenly account. And in the laser way of Jesus questioning us and the Holy Spirit alerting us in our conscience and our lives, I guess the Spirit says to us, which of these two accounts gets the most interest in your life? Which receives the most time and effort as you sort out what's in it? Which ultimately do you deem the most important and in heavenly terms is it the right one Paul says the harvest is in proportion to the planting and to invest in the things of God is the wisest investment of all how's the harvest 
going in your life this morning. And then as we read this passage, we have to ask how we are to give and with what attitude we're expected to give. Because Paul, writing to the Corinthians, tells us a little bit about that. Look at verse 7, for instance. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Just by the by almost, Paul suggests that giving that he expects from these Christians in Corinth should be the giving that comes from careful, prayerful deciding and resolve. He's not suggesting that the Corinthians have a quick whip round and whatever's in their pocket comes out and gets put on a plate and then off it goes to wherever. He's saying it's more serious than that. Now you think and you consider. And when you've made up your mind, that's the phrase in Corinthians, when you've made up your mind, then you'll know what to give. You see, what you give and what fields you sow into isn't just a quick rummage round. It's a decision that sometimes we have to measure and recast and sometimes have to fight for. It's been a bad month, therefore this goes, or, or should it go? Or These are things of resolve. As I've said, lots of Christians today seek to give generously, and some of them tithe. That means to give a set proportion, tithe means tenth, or what they have to the Lord to build treasure in heaven. Uh, but if you read a lot of the accounts of people who move to that, they don't set out doing that. What they tend to do is prayerfully decide what it is that they want to give to build treasure in heaven for the Lord's work and then increase it until they feel that that's the point that Christ is saying, that's right. And sometimes take a number of years or months to get to that point. Paul says the best attitude of giving of being generous is to do it cheerfully. I'm a great fan of Tony Hancock, uh, long dead, but I'm one of these sad people who has a complete selection of CDs of Hancock's half hours. And uh, he came across as a miserly old so-and-so. He played this role, even in big things like the blood donor, some of his famous half hours, he says it's it's always the lapels on my suits that first to go, he says. Filled with pinholes they are. Look at this. And he gets out his book. He says, Lifeboat Day, one and six. Now you've got to account for inflation. You know? Red Cross, ninepence. Yes, it's all in here, he says. And then he goes on, and when I'm finally called by the great architect, and he says to me, What did you do? I'll just bring me book out and I'll say, here you are, just add that lot up. But he never does it generously. Sid James and Tony Hancock are constantly bantering with one another in Hancock's half hours about the original Eric and Ernie sketch about no one ever sees Ernie's wallet. Came from Hancock. God loves a cheerful giver. Or in other words, God loves the person who is glad to give. This word cheerful, just, we just need to pause for 30 seconds uh, because cheerful fools us a bit when we translate it into English. 
It suggests you give with a smile on your face, but in fact the Greek word used here in Corinthians is the word that doesn't give rise to the word cheerful, it gives rise to our word hilarious. Now I heard a church treasurer once say that when they looked at what some Christians put in the offering plate, it was hilarious. But I don't think that's quite what Paul means here. The root meaning of the word hilarious is that which causes the heart to rejoice. In other words, you're just overtaken with mirth because of what you understand and see, something erupting inside of you. So what is it that can make Paul say to this group of Christians who are quite wealthy in Corinth, your giving should be generous and extravagant. It's like a hilarious activity. Just this. When our giving arises from a grateful heart that recognizes the extravagant generosity of God to us. God who loved the world and you and me so much that he gave his only son. We are the recipients of the greatest act of extravagant generosity the world has ever known. Paul told the Christians at Corinth a few verses earlier, and I used it today as the call to worship. For you know, he says, the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, pouring himself out, so that by his poverty you might be rich. The real reason to give generously and extravagantly is because we can't help but respond to the generous activity of God. Because we have come to know and realize and rejoice what God has done and continues to do. And then Paul begins to outline in this passage some of the consequences of giving. What results when you give generously? Well, there are consequences for the giver. In terms of the giver, God's response to generosity is, to use the phrase Paul uses here, to make grace abound to the giver. In other words, God is pleased when someone is generous and blesses them. Now we've got to be really careful here about what we can mean and what we shouldn't mean by talking about people being blessed because they're generous in giving. Some preach and teach what's known today as a prosperity doctrine. The more you give, the more God blesses you with wealth. So give because you'll get more back. The problem is when Christians begin to give generously simply on the basis that they expect to get more back. And then it's less like giving and more like speculating. Like a spiritual betting habit on odds that you can never lose. They give in order to get 
And therefore, in the purest sense, it's not really giving at all. And God becomes a kind of automatic vending machine who is somehow on a bound to match your generosity with you demanding that that requires more and more material benefits coming your way. I did this, Lord. When are you going to deliver? So the motive of giving can sometimes become wrong. But, but when all that's said and done, Paul says that to these Corinthians, if you give generously out of generous hearts for what God has done, you can rely on the blessing of God. You don't do it for that. You can just trust that that's the case. True giving is when a Christian gives generously without any promise that they'll get anything more back out of a grateful heart, but at the same time, they know the rich abundance of God's blessing themselves. But of course, if you just push this back a little bit, whose resources is it anyway? You see, if we say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, and we say, I belong to Christ, and we've said, Lord, everything I've got is yours, then where is all this resource that's ours to decide to give or not give? If we're his, then all that we've got is his already. And sometimes when we take up the offering, one of the prayers that's used as you take it up is, Lord, everything belongs to you already, but of our bounty we give you back that which is your own. When we're asked to be extravagantly generous with what God has given us, we're saying, Lord, use what you gave us. Donald English, that great Methodist preacher who had an office in the same place that I now occupy most of the week, was once talking to a group of wealthy businessmen in Dublin. I know because I've got a copy and transcript of his speech. And he said to this gathered group of wealthy businessmen, you see, when you come to know that you have just one account in life, and that is named everything in Christ Jesus, then you will be really free because you will realize then that everything is his and you are simply custodians of what he has given you in trust. For all the weaknesses of putting too much emphasis on prosperity teaching and seeing it simply as financial blessing, there is a promise that God will multiply what we sow. But Paul makes it clear that the primary beneficiaries of Christian generosity isn't just the person who gives the Christian themselves. It's those who benefit from the generosity. That's the whole background of Corinthians. 2 Corinthians takes up a theme that Paul covers in several letters in the New Testament, and that is that we think there was a major famine in the areas around Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was known as the home church from which everything had spread from the day of Pentecost. So here you are, several hundred miles away from Jerusalem, in Corinth. 
And Paul is turning round to this group of wealthy cosmopolitan Christians in this international Greco-Roman city and saying, we need to raise money for them. I know you've never met them. I know they're an alien culture. I know they're hundreds of miles away. I know that you're probably never likely to see them in your life, but in the economy of God, they are your brothers and sisters in faith, and I'm sending Titus to have a whip round, and I want you to seriously consider what you give, and I want you to be absolutely extravagantly generous. God will bless you. But as the rest of the passage then goes on, he then goes on and says, because it's right to do good things with the things that God has given you. You can choose to put the harvest in a field that reaps more and more for you, or you can choose to transform the world. And as a result of doing that, people will actually come to understand the love of God. We think to ourselves, I said something similar last week, that you know, our primary means of bearing testimony to the gospel is to get out on the streets or to do some street preaching. They're all legitimate ways. The Healing Space team meet people face to face. It's a great ministry. But if the question is, how do people really recognize that what goes on inside a building like this, outside transforms lives? Let them be struck dumb by the extent of the extravagant generosity of the followers of Jesus Christ. Because Paul says, what happens is that if we send this money back to the needy in Jerusalem, we won't just give it to those there who are followers of Jesus, we'll give it to the people of Jerusalem. And as a result of that, they'll turn around and say, who are these people and who is this God? And you will do a good thing. So I'm sending Titus. Get your wallets ready, says Paul. Now I focused a lot this morning about individual Christians and giving using this passage. It's not something we preach about very often, but it's in the passage. It's one of the fruitful practices of congregations. So we preach it. But actually, everything I've said about individuals is true of congregations. Congregations have money, they have bank accounts, they choose what to do with it, they hold meetings, we've got a finance committee on Tuesday. Vibrant and fruitful congregations practice extravagant generosity because they love God, they love the church as the people of God, and they desire to grow in love of neighbor and the world as an expression of response to God. Extravagant congregations don't talk about shortages. They don't really talk all that much about budgets. They talk, don't talk much actually about institutional loyalty or levies. They talk about mission, about kingdom ministries, about the proclamation of the Lord and about the transformation of the world. The rest just happens. 
God blesses them with all they need so they can continue to be God's agents for God's purposes. Wouldn't it be fantastic if God looked at this part of London and this building this morning and said, I'm so glad I've got that congregation of my people doing their stuff right there. They can be my hands. They can demonstrate my generous love. They can serve my loved ones. They can be what I want them to be. Paul ends this lesson to the Corinthians with this fantastic phrase. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It quite literally means you can't put into words what God has done. You see, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. God so loved the world that he gave a gift that cannot be earned or bought or matched, but is poured out upon you and me so that we, as we become more like that Christ, are characterized individually and collectively by extravagant generosity. May we not be found wanting in these days of need and challenge and blessing. Amen.